thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. evil has gone. Hello and welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy and I'm joined as always by my friends and co-hosts. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And uh, dear listener, as you may or may not be aware, in uh, the year 2028, the city of Los Angeles will be hosting the Summer Olympics. And uh, we are going to talk today about the possible consequences of this and why there are some groups uh, that are opposed to this. And we are joined today by, by two members of such a group, uh, the No Olympics Los Angeles Coalition. We are joined by uh, Molly Lampert, the host of the Night Call podcast, and by Johnny Coleman, uh, a local Los Angeles organizer. Uh, so first, I just want to thank you both for uh, being here and talking to us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be on. And so I guess to kind of start with, let's Explain the history uh, to people who don't know, and this is myself included here, of what happened with the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles and why that leads you to oppose the uh, 2028 Olympics. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, we, we get, you know, we get that a lot, especially in L.A., where there are some, um, you know, positive residue of, of the L.A. 84 Olympics. And it's um, it's kind of the prototypical example of like how an Olympics can go wrong, which it does every time. <laughs> and when when this Olympic bid was kind of came back from the dead after it looked like Boston was going to be the American representative for 2024, a whole bunch of other cities either voted it out or kicked it out. And then somehow L.A. looked like they were going to get it again, but not for 2024, but for 2028. And the whole time they were selling the idea of we're going to do it again. It'll be it'll be like L.A. 84 again. There was very much like a, kind of like a make America great again kind of vibe to it. And then for a lot of like more affluent, whiter communities in L.A., they remembered the L.A. 84 Olympics like very positively because it was, quote, no traffic. And it, you know, quote, made money for the city. And so I was, you know, I'm a journalist by day. And as this process was happening and I was getting more radicalized and getting more into organizing myself around housing and homelessness and policing, it became very apparent that L.A. was going to like default its way into another Olympics. And I started looking deeper into LA 84 with some other people I was organizing with. And it was just a horror show of like all sorts of, in all sorts of directions um, that had been kind of very, you know, conveniently whitewashed in the media. Um, so yeah, the big things in LA 84 were, 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 were policing and, and land grabs and, and all, all and everything in between. So we had Daryl Gates, who was one of, like arguably one of the worst law enforcement officers like in American history. He's like that famous. Um, he's a little bit before my time, but everyone I know who remembers him just said, like, talks about what a monster he is. Um, he was famously the one who was pushing the chokeholds. Um, and he's a major reason driving the police force of like, you know, all the civil unrest that happened in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, but he was basically given 
you know, it, the LAPD has always been bad. Like every other like major city police force has always been bad. And we don't, we don't argue that any of these problems kind of are invented out of, you know, thin air, like they're, they're an accelerant, right? But we had a bad police department that was given the pretext and the toys to just um, really do what they've always wanted to do, but under the pretext of doing something that has like a disnified kind of air to it that was like feels benign because of the marketing machine behind it. And so in addition to the LAPD getting trained by the IDF um, and having, I think what was called at the time, the largest, the largest law enforcement and uh, military occupation during peacetime in American history. Uh, they got all sorts of toys that you would see. And when I say toys, obviously I mean like violent machines of like police violence and state violence, like, like um, tanks, battering rams that you would see later in the eighties being used to like, just literally destroy entire homes in South LA. Um, and so the policing aspect of it was, was really kind of clear. And there's a lot of documentation. It wasn't just like speculation, remember this was well-documented the LA times, the New York times. Um, but culturally it had kind of been erased in favor of this, this narrative of, Oh, we didn't have traffic because there was a, there was a major campaign to, um, dissuade people from using their own infrastructure during the time the Olympics were coming because we wanted to put on a good face for all these international tourists and travelers. Um, and so the other big myth from the LA 84 Olympics was that they made money. They brought in um, a Republican to run the 84 games, Peter Uberoth, who uh, eventually became the Major League Baseball commissioner. And he was kind of active in some other um, areas in, in sports. Uh, in sports, but he he basically ran the Olympics like a business, like, you know, like running the city like a business kind of politician. And he found all these kind of new ways to make money off corporate sponsorships. So they were in the nickname for these, the 84 Olympics was actually the capitalist games. Um, and that's how they technically did produce a surplus, quote unquote, from the operating budget. But the problem with the operating budget is it doesn't account for all these other resources, whether it's police, whether it's um, transit that go into the equation and get leveraged, but aren't included. So the city always ends up spending more than it makes back and it never really makes a profit. And so that's why the Olympics in 84 was kind of this unusual experience. However, so it had a few million dollars left over. None of that money went back to the city. Mm. It went to a private, it went to a private foundation that is now con controlled by people who are investing that money into Blackstone, um, <laughs> Goldman Sachs, uh, the people that are destroying the communities and like the planet. So we've gone really hard on that group. They're called the LA 84 foundation. They're kind of a classic neoliberal scam. Um, but in general, they've had before we came along a pretty positive reputation because LA is a media, media desert. Basically we have one newspaper and the newspapers media partners with the Olympics and the LA 84 foundation. So they've never really been, quote unquote objective, nor do we expect them to be. But so we've kind of over the last three years, I think punctured a lot of these myths. And because of what's been happening in the last few months, I think a lot of LA is starting to catch up to these narratives and really starting to pay attention and, and question policing, especially, and there's so much evidence of the 84 games with policing. There's also all sorts of land grabs because the two interests that usually push an Olympic bid are, well, they're politicians, private security and policing interests and developers uh, in addition to like telecom and, and media interests more and more. But the LA 84 Olympics basically set the standard 
for the 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 capitalism on steroids version of the Olympics. They were before they were bad before 1984, but you just saw an escalation in everything. Like Ronald Reagan was literally at the opening ceremonies. I think the only American president doing all his make America all you know his, that was the re-election year. It was a couple months before the re-election. It's just if you really look at it in the lens from what we know now, it's like it's a horror show. Anyway, I've, I always get excited about LA eighty four because it's kind of held up as the the one time America fixed the Olympics, and it's right. it's dripping with both LA and American exceptionalism and nationalism and McDonald's and Coca Cola and all the reasons that sports capital is like fucked up everything, and it fucked up our police department forever. Like it's now it has tanks because of that, and that's normalized. It's just, they sugar coated the pill, you know. Oh, so like the thing where, you know, you see that footage of the LAPD from the 80s with the, you know, the um, the tanks uh, destroying, you know, quote unquote, crackdens when they're really just, you know, people's houses that might might be suspected of something that started with the Olympics then. Yeah, totally. And um, my job recently has been doing a lot of research in L.A. history. And not only did it help kind of create the circumstances and all the the tension and that led to the 92 uprising, but the people, we've been looking a lot at recovery narratives, both from COVID and from the racial uprising now to see how has LA responded in the past. So how did respond? How did LA respond in 1992? The, the mayor, the same mayor from LA 84, Tom Bradley, who's you know problematic for a lot of reasons, he hired the guy, Peter Uberoth from the Olympics to run the rebuilding effort of LA, hmm. which is like, a night, there's no reason Peter Uberoth, like a Reagan Republican should be doing that. And they did it using this very corporatized, nonprofit uh, approach to it. And it was a massive failure. And anyway, so that's kind of, and most people in LA do not know that history. So we're kind of, whether, whether they're from here or, tr- or transplants like myself. And so a lot of our work is just educating people about what went wrong in 84, what went wrong in their response in 92, and what's been going wrong ever since then with regards to development and over-policing. And now you can see it being a national narrative what's going on with policing budgets obviously so it's it's like an interesting time for our story to come out there i think absolutely and you know just doing a bit of cursory research for this episode i did try to find you know any criticisms of uh the 84 olympics in los angeles on the first few pages of google and you just can't really like it's all positive i read one curbed article is a real estate website that was you know long as hell i skimmed it it was all praising the olympics it's all oh it came in on time and under budget and it made money and all this stuff except for they had like one brief sentence about how i guess in order to make the city look nice they painted the houses of people who are living in desperate poverty in order to make them <laughs> uh you know more uh more color symmetry um Mm-hmm. But you but you mentioned also real estate developers and something we'll talk about a little bit more in this episode is a, a billionaire uh, named Rick Caruso. Uh, according to Forbes, he's worth about three point four billion dollars uh, as of June 2020. And, uh, you know, like you said, real estate developers definitely have an interest in pushing these kinds of uh, major sporting events. Yeah, totally. Um, as, you know, a lot of people don't know the, the reality of what happened in 84, and even fewer people know what happened in the 1932 Olympics, because that was the first time LA hosted them. And I just read a book recently about it, and that was literally um, a real estate developer's idea, and he got together with the six newspaper tycoons at the time, and they're like, let's sell LA as a single-family oasis. And that's why they did the Olympics. And they were very open about it. 
So that's kind of in our DNA of constant reinvention and reselling under different real estate speculation uh, premises, basically. Yeah, I, um, I've read up a little bit on some economic development reports about past Olympics, and they usually portray it in terms of, like, how did the output increase or the GDP increase for the city uh, as a result of the Olympics activities, and it does usually increase. But that's a very crude measurement of development, as any development economist will tell you. And they usually, when you dig down below kind of those surface level metrics, you find that it's at best uneven and at worst like deleterious to public housing and like social welfare programs. So like it has like um, the output is all going to basically McDonald's and um, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, other real, and also to real estate speculation. Like I was reading another paper that uh, concluded that the like the Beijing Olympics in 2008 led to an exacerbated real estate cycle. So like it had higher highs and higher and lower lows as a result of all the speculation that people were doing as to uh, capture, I guess, the option value of holding a investment property due to the Olympic stuff that was being built around it just environmentally. I was assuming that would happen in LA in 2024 if they end up doing it. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been doing deeper research on, you know, hotel subsidies and kind of their return, right? Because it's a similar argument and it's very related to the Olympics as well um, about all these promises of jobs and um, the boon to the economy. Most of this stuff, and this is coming from more like centrist or people whose like politics I don't align with, agree that the the return kind of like the same with like publicly financed stadiums in general is very specious and it's very hard to track. And, you know, you brought up Beijing in 2008 and, you know, the number I see quoted um, is 1.5 million evictions happened over the decade before that for the Olympics. So it's like, there's no figure that's ever going to convince me that like mass evictions are like worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's, but, it, but yeah, there's not a lot of convincing, you know, it's we're always like, oh, when there's money changing hands or financial arguments being made, it's always, yeah, I'm sure someone is profiting, but it's who is profiting, right? Like who's consolidating the contracts? You know, maybe maybe service workers get an extra two weeks of work of overtime that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. But what good is that if they're priced out of their community? You know what I mean? Kind of it, it, it's it's really there's not a lot of. The money is fast, it, and and it's that's why you know capital is very good at making sure that small businesses get cut out because a lot of times small businesses are promised a lot of things no matter where they are. Yeah, the um, Olympics come out of the World's Fair, so they're very similar to the World's Fair, and they're basically marketed the way the World's Fair is, which is just sort of like a grift on cities that they're going to come in and bring all this new uh, commerce and you know shake up the the infrastructure but not actually they're just gonna come in and fleece everybody for a few months and then leave town like a carnival yeah the really the the really horrible example from la 84 of this of this happening um that again like no one in 84 no one in city hall knows about apparently because we've talked to them and they look at us like we're speaking you know 
um, a different language. And they say, basically, they, they promised a lot of small black uh, mom and pop uh, owned businesses in L.A. that they would um, get all this. You know, they did, they, did, they did all these contracts beforehand. And what happens in the lead up to every Olympics is the closer you get, the, the, the financial interests that are pushing it will push everything out and nothing else matters. They'll blow everything else out. So if you have other civic projects, this will absorb all the resources. If you make small, if you make promises to small businesses, they will not be honored. So you'll see like literally streets blocked off and commandeered for whatever reason, if they want to, that might mean you can't access your business or you can't access your home. So for LA 84, I think over a dozen uh, black-owned businesses were bankrupted because of um, a bad bad deals that the city didn't honor. Hmm. And they sued the city a year later for millions of dollars, and they won because it was that egregious. So we saw that in Pyeongchang in 2018, you know, a small um, skiing village, basically. All, those base, all the small businesses there were furious because they, you could not access their part of town. Yeah, And so if anything, it doesn't, not only does it not help, it usually gets screwed and crushed. Like street vendors, which are a huge part of LA culture, it's like they will not be anywhere near uh, Olympic venues and their living depends on this. So they yeah. they will, who knows what's going to happen, you know? Right, and also because they're going to allow ICE to have free reign of the city if they do have the Olympics. So, you know, another reason why most people would not want to be near the Olympics, uh, it'll be, you know, we saw what it will be like. Uh, we saw a little preview the past uh, few weeks, you know, when they brought in the National Guard and uh, just had them parked on every every major tourist street. You know, they will occupy the entire city. Yeah, in 2002, uh, the first Olympics in America after uh, 9-11 and under the, you know, um, this what they designate a national special security event. So for the Super Bowl, for the RNC, the DNC, the World Cup, and the Olympics, um, it's a joint command between DHS and um, local law enforcement. And a whistleblower came out a few years ago, I believe from the NSA in like 2015, and said, oh, for 20, 2002, we just stole so much civilian data like across the city for no reason. Like almost, for, I mean, obviously for reasons, but... No specific purpose, just because they could. And that just happens with every Olympics. You just find out all these things that the surveillance and police state have done. And, you know, now with Tokyo next year, too, it's, um, you know, they, your face is basically the ticket for the 2020 Olympics if they happen. And that's what the people want to make it happen for 2028 to normalize facial recognition. So you see policy start to shift six, seven, eight years out in front of an Olympics to to make sure all this happens as frictionless as possible. Now, that. Taking a, a, a short step back, uh, you mentioned a lot of evictions, um, you know, people like losing their homes. I, I was wondering how that manifests specifically, whether it's um, uh, basically rent prices being driven up uh, just because of the Olympics being in town or whether there's a lot of use of eminent domain to force people out of their homes for Olympic venues and that sort of thing, or, you know, or most likely a combination of both. It's a whole, like you know, arsenal of tools that happen now, displacement, because we, you know, we have a big stadium, the, the most expensive stadium in American history going up in Inglewood. And I was getting an argument with someone the other day saying that, oh, there was nothing there before. It was a parking lot. So there's no displacement. And you're like, that's obviously not just how the only way displacement works, right? So classically, uh, before kind of the rise of the Airbnb, it was mostly in the format of, yeah, just like raising buildings, um, 
having policy changes or regulations suspended because it's like a planned like state of exception in the years before the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um, The big one in California is CEQA, which will come up later with our friend Rick Caruso because he's talked about that's an environmental regulations, but they're trying to make like loosen those so you can build for other purposes. You know, a lot of things can be pushed through under the pretenses of the Olympics that might not otherwise happen. In LA right now, for example, we have Another, another California law is called the Ellis Act, which means if you change the nature of a property, let's say from a rental to a hotel, like a commercial space, you can, you can legally do that. You have to pay like a relocation fee, but um, it basically incentivizes raising low-income housing to build luxury housing or, or hotels or mixed-use stuff. So we know people that live by the Coliseum right now that as early as 2018 have started the eviction process because of they want to create more hotels for 2028. Hmm. So it's not only taking off much, much needed low income housing in LA in, you know, we're like the most uninhabitable city right now. And it's turning into something for an event in 12 years. So it's taking off housing stock, adding stuff we don't need that will raise the help raise the rents, you know, in gentrifying areas to make them unaffordable that would indirectly help price out other people for the next decade. There's also Airbnb. Airbnb announced a 10-year partnership with the Olympics last fall. Um, okay. They've taken a big hit from COVID, but they've bounced back really hard because obviously people want to get the fuck out of their houses right now. Um, Airbnb, similarly, I don't know how much y'all know about that, but um, very much contributes to the lack of affordable housing in cities because it's basically taking off housing from the market, right? It's like making housing more scarce and driving demand up and driving prices up. And so that there are literally, you know, LLCs running 20 different Airbnbs in LA. Um, It's not just someone who has an extra room in their house. You know, there's so many people abusing that. So we're fighting them directly too. Um, That that 10 year contract goes right through the end of, um, right after uh, 2028 Olympics. Um, It's interesting to bring up Airbnb too, because the 2024 Olympics in Paris were pushed in by a more progressive mayor than ours that actually ran on an anti-Airbnb platform. So now she's got the hotel industry furious at her in Paris and creating a weird wedge that still hasn't been resolved. Um, So hotels, Airbnb, all sorts of other weird speculation around that. Eminent domain is sometimes used in LA to destroy public, or we don't have much public housing left, but um, low-income housing, That's famously what happened for Dodger Stadium, obviously. The Clipper Stadium, which is next to the SoFi Stadium in in Inglewood, is almost done being approved, and they're going to be using eminent domain to gobble up all sorts of businesses and property in the area. Um, So, yeah, there's so many different ways. And obviously different countries and different municipalities have their own different rules, but a lot of us went to Tokyo last summer and met with anti-Olympics organizers from around the world, and we obviously came to the conclusion that Obviously, the, the, the context, the cultural context, the political context is different in these places, but in the big picture, it, it all basically operates the same. So they're doing the same shit in Tokyo. Like, we can look at Tokyo right now in 2020 and be like, this is what LA is going to look like in eight years. And it's a pretty good, you know, uh, estimation of where we'll be. Hmm. And so it was good to go there, but it was also really frightening. Well, I don't know. It sounds to me like you both want to put all the hardworking steroid doctors out on the street. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
We get that a lot, you know, like fun killers or like um, what, you know, there's obviously a Portlandia sketch about anti-Olympic stuff or whatever that we're just like looking for a problem. But it's um, no, it's like, and you know, we get that a lot, like more from the athletes, the people who really earnestly love the Olympics. They're like, if you look at what they're doing to the athletes historically and in the last year from psychological, physical, sexual uh, abuse, wage theft, like rampant wage theft, especially for American athletes. Hmm. Um, you name it. Like these people are, they're basically treated like soldiers and their, their bodies and their lives are disposable. Right. It's the same thing of like, Oh, you should want to like completely destroy your body for patriotism. (laughs) (laughs) Money. What's that? You don't need money. You're doing it for the good of, you know, unless you lose and then we don't need you anymore. Yeah, like Molly said, you know, that the Olympics were born out of the um, the World's Fair, which is basically as old as our, like, American, you know, university systems and other things like modern policing. You know what I mean? It's like there are all these institutions that have had a certain lifespan and seem like they may be kind of, especially the NCAA comparison is, is apt because the Olympics hide behind the veil of, like, amateurism somehow. Yeah. These are the best athletes in the world at whatever they do. So it's, it's nuts that they've gotten away with that for over 100 years. But I think people are finally, from all different angles, figuring it out. But they can't. We're trying to help synthesize that. Yeah. I, I would imagine that the No Olympics movement, possess, like some of them, some of y'all are actually really serious sports fans. And you're kind of in agreement that, yeah, I mean, I would, well, personally, like, I would love to have all of those games. I just don't want there to be unequal development tied to it. And like there, there's probably a way to host as big of a mega sports event without having a serious deleterious effect on workers, basically. Well, I think you're seeing this with all the leagues. It's like no billionaire should be in charge of any of this stuff because they will use it to exploit uh, people in places. So, you know, if there's going to be sports, then there have to be leagues that are owned by the players you know, you see with the NFL and the NBA, they're like dealing with this too now um, under COVID. It's like they want everyone to just like get right back to work, even though it's totally dangerous and dangerous for the players and like anybody who works in those leagues. But the the desire for just, you know, to make money, the push to make money above all else is so strong that, you know, some people see, like, the human carnage of this and they really don't care because they just want to, like, wave that flag, you know? Yeah. Um, right. My grandmother was a, a athlete who was a German Jew who was um, going to be on the German track and field team in the 1936 Olympics, um, and she was toyed with, essentially, uh, when the Germans were deciding whether or not they had to keep Jews on the team if the world was really going to boycott if they didn't. Um, but they ended up dropping my grandmother from the team. You know, they really like used her uh, and she was really upset also because she would have won, you know, and then she's also like, well, if I had won, who knows what would have happened to my family? You know, I would have been expected to Heil Hitler on the podium. So I think I've always, because of that personal connection, I've always been thinking about, like, how do the Olympics relate to fascism and nationalism and, you know, questioning anything that's, that's uh, selling us nationalism or selling us, you know, world togetherness because it feels 
it always felt something about it felt very propagandistic to me. And then finding out from this work about things like that the Nazis invented the torch relay for the 1936 Olympics, you know, makes a lot of sense, especially since we've seen a lot of torches reappear as a fascist symbol recently. Um, you know, it puts it all in this context. Um, but we've also seen with No Olympics work, it's like, we've actually sort of built this international solidarity that the Olympics are always claiming they care about, of like everybody coming together for a day. Mm, and instead right. it's like we've met people from all the major cities that have you know had Olympic bids or had Olympics come and, and ravage the city. And every city has the same problem. Every city has not enough public housing, you know, a huge uh, homelessness issue because of the issue of housing. And it's all of that same stuff, which is just pushing profit above, you know, human need, basic yeah, need. Yeah, totally. It's like, we don't need, we don't need billionaires. We don't need Coca-Cola to have sports. Like we can do other things. And a lot of people and myself included, like the left has staged a lot of different over, you know, it's been a while now, it's been decades now, but like successful kind of alternatives to the Olympics, the workers Olympiad uh, in Chicago and different European cities. Cause this, these criticisms aren't, aren't uh new by any means uh so yeah we feel like and we've been saying this all along and now with covid first and what's happening um with the state violence uh uprising stuff has really i think hopefully made people question what sports is where it fits a play you know like will nba players risk their lives to go to celebration florida or will they like fight back against the owners like maybe they will like maybe that maybe we, we can reimagine sports in the next couple of years or if they or if they do go and it gets all fucked up you know like <laughs> why should they trust the owners the owners clearly do not have their you know and you see that anytime a player gets injured it's like they instantly become you know, useless to a team if they can't play anymore, mm -hmm. um, which is how capitalism works. It's like, if you can't make money, you have no value. And that is the dumbest way to possibly uh, think of a human being. Yeah. And, and our basic deal is like anything else. And I think this is really like resonant is that like, it's not about reforming the Olympics, right? It's like, this is designed to break cities. If this stuff doesn't happen by right, accident, designed, that's the point. It's designed to extract capital the way that like a factory is designed to like extract capital from from workers. It's yeah. like designed to take out more than it can give back and to leave town before it has to be accountable for giving anything back. So that's the thing. It's like they could, you know, if they wanted to even have the appearance of trying to put something where they go, they would, you know, build housing and leave it. But none of them do that because it's also like none of them have any reason to be invested in the cities because they just are moving on to the next one. You know, it's there's like no they, accountability mechanism right, they, by design. They suck out all the blood and then they they move on to the next the next victim. Well, I think that's a good segue for just both of you to tell our listeners about No Olympics Los Angeles Coalition and basically with the question of so what's your goal like? Can you stop the 2028 LA Olympics or, uh, you know, and obviously if people want to help, what should they do? But, uh, you know, kind of how you got into it, what the organization does and what the objective uh, is. And I want to just note for the listeners, I think Molly got into character for this with a no Olympics mug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> out of. There's a fun story behind that mug. Oh, yeah. I, d I made it a color me mine when I was. Oh interviewing uh, Haley Bieber, Justin Bieber's wife, 
and <laughs> so, so uh, you got soft support from the Bieber clan. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. She came out for Bernie, which I was like, all right, all right. Oh, um, cool. I compared No Olympics to uh, other types of organizations. I was like, you know, you got to meet friends. Um, we were talking about church, and I was like, I have a group of friends that we meet and talk about things that we are thinking and feeling. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, yeah, we um, we've been going kind of nonstop for three years. You know, it was always born out of it was born out of a DSA LA chapters homeless and housing and homelessness um committee. Yeah, this is like the longest lead time anyone's ever had to try and stop an Olympics. So, you know, one of our things we've always said is like so many things could happen between now and twenty twenty eight that would make it impossible, you know, or just not... Like major economic or other events that would change the complexion of it. So we've already, we're already seeing that happen, you know, and and it is part of the grift is that everybody who voted this in, which was all without any input from the people of LA, it was all just city council and they're all in the pocket of these developers and so is the mayor. They're all going to be gone for the most part, especially the mayor will be like, you know, He's gone in a year and a half. Yeah, like he, it's not. There's a reason why they're doing these deals so they can leave town before you know the shit hits the fan. Like all yeah. of this, you know, we want to make LA this great city that you know everybody loves to be part of. It's like, well, if you wanted to do that, you would address homelessness by building housing, and you would you know not evict people from their homes during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. No. I think so. I think to answer your question, it's it feels like realer than ever. We're, we've always lived in a world where, like, any outcome is possible, like, being re- realistic. Like, other people have fought the Olympics and not been able to stop them. You know, that's a very real possibility. But now it looks very possible that, like, even Tokyo 2020, 2021 might not happen because there's a big governor election in Tokyo where people are running specifically to cancel the election as the as their pla- as the major, the, the tip the of their platform. What did I say? Election. Cancel, sorry, cancel the Olympics. Um, that's a good platform, too, s- though. Yeah, can't, yeah, no presidents this year. That's actually, I would support that. Supporting just not having a president for the next four years. Um, Careful what you wish for. I mean, no, actually. Plot no, twist. I'll take, I'll take that chaos. Um, but no, so it's, it feels like it's a possibility. Um, you know, they're, they're like, like there's no public support for this. There was a poll that said 88% of people wanted to do, like, the support of the Olympics that was paid for in part by the Olympics. It took us a few years to find this out. We did our own polling, which showed very different things. But I found out last Christmas time that the guy who ran that poll, his name is Fernando Guerra at LMU. At the time um, of his running the poll, he was a lobbyist for Sandstone Properties, which has at least four Olympic hotels in development and a deal with Uber for flying taxis for 2028. I shit you not. So it's a completely astroturf bid. We have a situation where people in L.A., a large amount of people, give a shit about what's going on at City Hall right now and where money is being spent in policing, which I was hoping was going to happen. I didn't imagine it was going to happen this quickly, like overnight almost. Um, so the Overton window is shifted. I think anything's possible. Capital has a really good way of kind of regrouping and coming back strong with recovery narratives and tying that to sports. I'm originally from New Orleans, so we saw what happened with you know, the saints after that and how the city's basically been privatized in the last decade. So it's like, it can go a lot of ways, but, um, after, after Katrina. Yeah. So basically, yeah, I mean, it has the same problems that all these other American cities are happening, but this, the last time I was home, like a year or so ago, the last public school had closed. Um, it had gone full charter. Wow. 
to battle here. Um, you know, areas in New Orleans I would never have seen becoming trendy or gentrified or becoming gentrified. And I know a lot of people are fighting that and there's a lot of good work happening down there. Um, but yeah, and I think stuff like the sports narrative and coming back really helped nonprofits and other, and, other and, and, and the way sports is tied to nonprofits and policing and gentrification just really got people not to think about these hard things when, you know, people just want to get back to normal. And that's a very like, you know, I, it's a relatable thing to want to have your sports back and to have your mega events back. But um, so anything feels possible right now, especially because people hate our mayor. Um, they're very skeptical about other institutions now, especially policing. And you've literally got like a week or two ago, the head of the L.A. police union, arguably one of the worst unions in existence, going on Fox News saying, well, if you guys defund the police, then that means you can't have security for the 2026 World Cup and the 2028 Olympics. And we're, we're like, great. Let's, I think right now people's <laughs> allegiance to an event eight years from now that they don't really even know is happening for most people is less strong than people's desire to fuck LAPD right now. And so we've seen just a lot of new members come to us. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of political energy on the left. It's like across groups and issues. We're also facing like, upwards of like 500,000 evictions in the coming months to add on to our like 70,000 unhoused people now. And that's a night, you know, from most of us are coming from a tenant organizing background, like that's the next nightmare that's coming. But we're hoping that this all naturally threads together with yeah, the policing work because who, who, you know, who carries out evictions? It's police. This is all threaded together. And I think sports now are being used as this mirage of normalcy of like, don't worry, there will be sports again. Like football will be back in the fall and everything will be fine. And it's obviously really for racists, you know, cause mm -hmm. they're like, we don't want to deal with this cause we're racists. So like bring us back football. And it's like, Obviously, everything is political, including sports, and part of that politics is, like, worker conditions, and so, you know, even people who I think would love to not think about the worker conditions of athletes are being forced to think about it, which is good, because yeah. they should. You shouldn't yeah. get to just enjoy things without having to think about it. That, that world is gone. Yeah, and as much as the push to reopen is going to happen, it's like, I work in an industry that is just, was crumbling before COVID, and um, we're going to have a big alienated workforce, too, and... A lot of people are hungry for knowledge that they've been starved of or LA's own history is like constantly being, you know, whitewashed in particular. I'm sure it's happening everywhere, but especially it's an LA thing. And um, yeah, I think the next six months is going to be a roller coaster of a lot of like, who, like I, I, I can't even pretend to know what's going to happen in six months. So unlike our mayor who said in 2017, like what happens if LA gets a big earthquake? His response was something like, Oh, I'm pretty sure UCLA will still be around. LA is a resilient place. <laughs> our mayor currently too is it's he's not only our problem potentially, he's also everyone's problem because he's also on the co-chair. He's a co-chair for the Joe Biden campaign. Oh, so if, great. if Joe Biden becomes president, um, it's very likely that Eric Garcetti will be um, in the cabinet somewhere. My gut says like a climate position will be mm -hmm. created for him or even Secretary of State, because he has some weird military, like, butch stuff going on. Because um, he still has presidential ambitions, I think. I don't know if he's going to be able to, after this whole LAPD mess, but... No, he's done. He's cooked. But he's he's well-heeled. Billionaires love him. So he can, he's, just he's useful. love other rich people, though. I know, but, like, he can be... Like, he, there's a, but if you we know, run all the rich people out... Well, that's the, that's the dream, that's right? That's what this podcast is for. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. 
It is it is funny how state and local politicians are so good at pretending to care about climate change because they they don't necessarily have the power of someone at the, in the Senate um, to do anything about it. And so they can just, you know, say things about it and then do all the, you know, under the table deals that no one's ever going to see with polluters and whatnot. A hundred percent. Yeah. Garcetti is the head of like the C40 international mayors group. He's branded himself really hard and we work sunrise LA's in our coalition. Uh, I think to answer someone else's question from earlier, we have a bunch of groups from climate to racial justice, abolition groups, tenants groups in LA, you know, LA tenants union, black lives matter ground game, like a couple dozen groups. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely forgetting some. Um, and the, yeah, he's co-opting the language of the left saying, oh, this is LA's new green deal. He rolled out last year. It's trash. It's trash. And the Olympics just make it worse, you know, because you're diverting all these other resources and energy and years of, you know, municipal time and energy away from where it's needed. No matter where you are, there's something that your city needs and it's this is going to suck away from it. Yeah. But so that's a good transition into kind of the theme of this podcast, which is, of course, billionaires. But also we often ask the question, who benefits? You know, who benefits from the L.A. Olympics? And uh, one of the people that we're going to talk about briefly now is uh, Rick Caruso. We mentioned at the top of the podcast, a billionaire, according to Forbes, $3.4 billion net worth. Forbes also gives him a 7 out of 10 self-made score. Uh, which is a little bit amusing because I found a New York Times article that said that uh, Rick Caruso grew up in Beverly Hills, California. His father was a millionaire who owned uh, a whole bunch of car dealerships and apparently also started the dollar rent-a-car. And I will just... um, Rick Caruso got his start as a property developer, but I'll just read you this sentence from the New York Times. He worked as a lawyer before getting into real estate by buying property and leasing it to his father's business. Unquote. So when you say seven out of 10 self-made score, he had the uh, uh, smartest and most innovative real estate empire strategy, which was to use his dad's money to buy real estate and then lease it back to his father. So seven out of 10 self-made score. Uh, but maybe you could just tell us and our listeners a bit more about Rick Caruso in general and also how he, he relates to the 2028 Olympics. Yeah, before I got into politics, I just knew him as the guy who devel- who's a big mall developer. Yeah, he but- developed these horrible malls in L.A. that everybody loved that are basically Disneyland malls. They're like outdoor malls that are themed a little bit. But Johnny found this amazing article from the L.A. Times in 2004 where they profiled Rick Caruso, where he was in New Orleans walking around on Bourbon Street and just going like, ugh, disgusting. <laughs> Um, he just like, he hated Bourbon Street because it was like, you know, grimy and like a real place. So he, uh, he, but he likes like theme details, which is also like, there is a New Orleans part of Disneyland for the same reason that Walt Disney was like, oh, like this would be great without all the, you know, actual history and all the riffraff. Yeah. Like (laughs) a faint air of actual fun. So, yeah, he, he developed these, these small, the Calabasas Commons, I think, was the first one. And then he's built a bunch of malls just like that that are fake Italian and play, uh, like... Sinatra. Yeah, Sinatra and Michael Buble on, like, you know, speakers everywhere and have a trolley. But um, they're totally fake public spaces. They're super, you know, have a lot of security. Um, and... 
They suck. They're basically actually. a vision of like the city under an Olympic rule with no trash, no unhoused people. Like no, yes. you get a five hundred dollars ticket for smoking cigarettes at the Glendale Americana, and they will give you that ticket. Right, like, they're it's like wild. an indoor mall turned outside, but it's like a fake town, so that makes it more insidious because it's like this creepy. Wholesome... It looks like a public space, but it's yeah. very privatized. Yeah, people can live there at some of the malls upstairs. I don't know who does that weird, like, European rich people or something. like. But, yeah, apparently it's, like, you know, all the developers love him, and he got the approval to build the Grove because his dad was best friends with a member of city council who hmm. was like, let my son, my millionaire son, build his fun little project that everybody in the neighborhood's opposed to. And they were like, sure, of course. Yeah, and it's now it claims that's the Grove. That's the big famous one in the middle of, like, Hollywood where they do what the Mario Lopez show or whatever, and they claim to have more, like, daily visitors than Disneyland. It's, like... But yeah, it's just a mall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just a mall. Yeah, and that was the one, too, that people were, you know, spray-painting, uh, tagging and stuff uh, during the uprising at, around the Fairfax district, and there was, like, this idiotic wave of people who were like oh god not the nordstroms you know <laughs> protect the nordstroms and like came out to like wash the blm you know spray paint oh, off of it the next people. day yeah so it's like people have this civic pride about the grove even though it's only been there since 2004 yeah and rick caruso is probably i would say like easily in the top 10 of you know la has i think like 59 billionaires technically now although hard to like quantify because you know everyone has second third fourth homes in all these big cities anyway but we're like we're up there but i would say he's probably one of the 10 he's worst, got a yacht he's yeah he's one of the 10 worst probably people in la he's with, got a yacht called invictus invictus yeah um <laughs> he, he but he like he's he's his history is threaded through usc which full disclosure i went there for undergrad so i can definitely say what a, might be the most corrupt academic institution on the planet um at least in america um, yeah, we were saying, too, it's like, it's, you know, it functions the same way as, like, Ivy League schools, which is, like, for all these people to meet each other and, and form connections and then also use, like, alumni fundraising fundraising to, to grift. Yeah, I mean, like, like any major either private or public school in a city, particularly private schools that I'm aware of, it's one of the biggest land uh, landowners, developers itself. Um, Rick Caruso went there in the early 80s when... This, USC got rebranded as a serious school like in the later 90s. He was there back in the day when it was lily white, you know, rich kids from L.A. and Orange County, like all white, essentially, besides like athletes. Um, when it was more of a party school, he was an SAE, I know. And that is like when you when you imagine what the worst fraternity at USC would be, like that is SAE. Um, uh, he, so he comes out of that tradition, just real good old boy network went to law school and then realized, oh, there's actually, he's doing like real estate law, but then realized the money is in actually development. Then he somehow got into with Mayor Bradley, the guy who bought the 84 Olympics in, um, he got it. He was on the DWP for a minute, like Department of Water and Power. Uh, he's clearly making a lot of money and, and getting, getting involved in a lot of other areas. And I think in the, in the beginning of the 2000s, when the LAPD was trying to rebrand after the nightmare of the 80s and the 90s, um, he was on the police commission, which is a very, you know, powerful position in L.A. Um, yeah, there's this weird merry-go-round of people that shuffle between the police commission, the DWP, like baseball team developer. ownership and developers. And 
that's who runs LA and probably every city is just like, you know, totally out of touch with the people that live in the city, just a bunch of like rich white guys. And a lot of them are, are like second generation rich white guys. Um, uh, Rick Caruso is on the bid, but so is Casey Wasserman, who's a sports agent in LA that, um, also very corrupt and also the comes from a, a corrupt dynasty the of Lou Wasserman who was a famously corrupt uh, agent who founded one of the big agencies uh, who was in deep with the mafia and so and so yeah the the quick the quick hits on Casey Wasserman where grandfather was in the mafia was friends with all these actors literally got Ronald Reagan into politics so we can thank him for that um, his son Casey's dad, Jack Myers, got in trouble in the late 80s, also with the mafia in some FBI sting for some bribes and financial crimes. Casey grows up super wealthy, gets to know Eric Garcetti as a rich kid. They both go to Harvard Westlake. Are those the fireworks? Yeah, those are the fireworks. Yeah, yeah. Told you. Told you to hear some. That's real. That's Yeah, that does sound different than what's yeah, going on here. Right. Um, CIA is trying to disrupt the recording. <laughs> that's they, it's a psyop yeah they get the message in their slack channel to go to andy's address and set off their m80s podcast trying to stop the olympics take them out um yeah rick caruso's dad also uh had a court case caught a case about um a lot of financial stuff and then he was like magically pardoned in 1970 so it's like I feel like these guys also come back later to be like, oh, actually, like your grandfather's legacy was squeaky clean and he founded this agency and everybody loves him. And so let's continue. Yeah. Some quick hits on Casey Wasserman. So he, he took his grandfather's name, not his dad, because his dad was more disgraced than his grandfather. <laughs> um, he owned an arena football team, which is only notable for, I think, having a player die during a game. Jesus. He tried to get an NFL stadium built with our mayor during the aughts, which is a big, colossal fuck up. He was a very much on some George W. Bush energy of like, get a sports agency or screw around. And he somehow kind of has started like really turning a profit recently, which sucks. Um, he's, well, he's made himself be like, I'm the sports super agent. You know, I'm Jerry Maguire or whatever. But it's like he was on the Epstein plane. Oh, yeah. He was on the Epstein oh. plane. He's in that famous Vanity Fair article that mentions uh, Clinton Spacey and Chris Tucker, yeah, but his name is never mentioned in that, and well, anytime he's, he's not, written about he's that like, no one ever mentions that. He's one of these people who's rich and influential, but not necessarily famous, and like doesn't yes. want to be, because that means being you know held accountable for this kind of stuff. But yeah, he was on one of the flights in the Epstein flight logs that they went to on a trip to Africa, supposedly for like AIDS uh, vaccine research or something, and That's it was a creative way of framing it. It was Chris Tucker and Bill Clinton and uh, Spacey Clinton and all Kevin Spacey. Yeah, it's in Vanity Fair. It's well documented. It was mentioned Washington. in a lot of all the new yeah. stuff. Right. We've been so, trying to get people to write about it. He locked down his social media on July twenty fourth last year when we were in Tokyo, and he the first. Well, because we were giving because it's all we still locked like, down. Because he represents like Megan Rapinoe, you know. So I was like, "Hey, like Megan Rapinoe shouldn't be represented by somebody who was like, you know, hanging out with child traffickers on an international flight." I feel like, I feel like it shouldn't be controversial to say that anybody who was on the Epstein plane like should not have power and money. And just to back up for a second for the listeners, according to Casey Wasserman's Wikipedia, he is the man who led like the leader of Los Angeles's bid for the 2028 Olympics. So this is the right. guy yeah. who's probably, he, if more than anyone else, most responsible for this. 
Yeah, he yeah, is the most sure. connected to it. Eric Garcetti, the mayor, he it was for his political vanity and to like kind of level up the way Mitt Romney used the Salt Lake Olympics earlier to kind of get on the national stage. Right, and for Wasserman, it's like to make his own profit because he'd be the person that would be repping like the gold medalists. You and know? he's selling the sponsorships because he's he's also a co co board member in Vox. He has he has a lot of interest in a lot of, a lot of other media companies. So like you're saying earlier, he's just doing all the contracts right. to himself. So yeah, he's, and he's got money in in stadiums. He's got money. In, he's got money in everywhere. He gives millions to the LA Police Foundation, and he. Um, so when the LA bid commi- committee was coming together, he personally called a couple buddies to raise sixty million dollars to create all the propaganda for the bid. Um, during the bidding process, we found out that one of the companies that he gave a contract to was one of his own media companies and he claimed he was out of it was like over a million dollars he claimed he was out of the room when that conversation happened and the press the press you know reprints this uncritically it's insane but it's him and all of his rich buddies got together and said let's make a fuck ton of money based on these other stadiums that are kind of already in progress we're going to magically get this and it's great and we'll make a lot of money and hopefully people won't care about all the bad stuff that happens or we can we can um, cover it up enough. So, Papa John, you want to throw Papa oh, John in? And oh, this is the best. So, you, uh, so Casey Wasserman. You know, I told you both of his his dad and his grandfather were both well known for money laundering with the mob. Um, he bought a PR firm called Laundry Service a few years ago. Um, uh, that's you know, an d- ominous name, or that's yeah. a, <laughs> so two on the nose. It's yeah. Every, all of this shit is just two on the nose. Um, and he's, and he, one of his clients was Papa John during Papa John's crisis PR stage when he had to go, <laughs> when he said uh, the word you're not supposed to say on a call when you're trying to prove that you're not a racist. Right. Mission, mission accomplished to that PR firm. Can hang up a giant gets, banner. Yeah, exactly. It's terrible. So right. after that blow up, you know, the laundry service or whatever got a lot of bad PR and uh, and a big fight internally happened. And apparently, Casey Wasserman, uh, Papa John has a tape recording of Casey Wasserman threatening to like ruin Papa John or in something in a way that is like <laughs> crosses a legal line. So now Papa John is suing him and I think might have the upper hand and the moral high ground in this situation. Hmm. So that's who we're dealing with. Larry Nassar, who is, you know, this massive abuser of Olympic gymnasts. Um, had several hundred survivors come forward a couple years ago, kind of when we got started. And last year, um, they sent a letter to Eric Garcetti and Casey Wasserman saying, you cannot move forward with the LA 2028 Olympics uh, un- until this is addressed in some meaningful way, this abuse scandal, because it's not just gymnastics, it's swimming, taekwondo, boxing, you name it. It's like the Catholic Church, the, the levels of unaccountability are, are beyond... Um, compare and Casey Wasserman's response was yeah you know we see you we hear you cool like you know like we'll be better like he won't listen to them like like, it's just it's maddening kind of what happens sometimes and how and how Molly said he's like the he's like the right level of famous and powerful that most people in LA have never even fucking heard of him Right. Well, you know, and what I was taking away from from what you just told us is that we might actually get to, in a few years, read the news story that Papa John strangled himself in his prison cell. <laughs> yeah, he committed suicide um, because of the grief. Um, Probably because he had too much garlic sauce. Yeah, yeah, had too much congealed <laughs> garlic sauce. Um, 
no, Casey himself Watson by stuffing a, a rat dipped in garlic sauce in his own growth. <laughs> yeah. He killed himself by eating an entire Papa John's pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like you look at 100 years ago and the conditions where, you know, in just in general and, you know, the yellow journalism happening and, you know, he obviously has his fingers in every pie there is in L.A. And our next big goal is really getting people to pay attention to not just Casey Wasserman, but, but Steve Soberoff. Like and Caruso. And too, even yeah. in Caruso, they know what the Grove is, but yeah. most people don't know who he is. And he wants to run for mayor, too. So yeah, That's right. why he's equally scary, because he's kind of a... Com- he's like, what if Casey Wasserman and Eric Garcetti had a, you know, like had a yeah. baby? And all these guys are, like, patting themselves on the back so much for how great they all think they are. It's like they're so removed from reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, look at a photo of Rick Caruso. He looks like a madman, like, extra, like, reject. It's people who are literally trying to make L.A. feel like it's in a, the last century, some, you know, idealized yeah. utopic Imagine, version of it that yeah. never existed. Yeah, and, like, obviously Rick Caruso is a Republican, but, yeah, his his design aesthetic is so, like, Eurocentric. It is, like, just the opposite of what Los Angeles actually is or should be. Yeah, Casey. Casey just sold his house for sixty-eight million dollars last week. Um, oh, sorry, eighty-six maybe. It was originally one hundred fifty million dollars. He sold it to his buddy David Geffen, and he also just bought Paradigm's music department because it's a. He's on like a distress asset shopping spree. He's yeah. like that level of you know rich. When you're that rich, you can fail over and over again, and you always get more chances to no. fail. Yeah, go back and look at photos from the two thousands of Casey Wasserman versus now. Like he was a fuck up for so long, but he got a million chances and eventually started hitting. And now he's perceived to be, you know, he's in the philanthropist. He's in the philanthropist class now. You know, where people just assume his money is benevolent. And it's kind of our job to make people uh, just look under the rock a little bit. And now people are like willing to go do that and do that sniffing out. Uh, to, to just uh, elaborate on the uh, Madman comment about uh, Rick Caruso, he's, uh, just to clarify, he's the kind of guy who, um, he's kind of Madman character where once um, someone closes a door, he says disgust, something disgusting to a secretary. That's the, that's the kind of vibe you get from him is... Um, you know, he said he's very nice to the to the uh, executives and then uh, he reveals himself to be very gross. Yeah. And just to say a couple more things about Rick Caruso, uh, you know, you were talking about all this corruption and these bureaucracies like this. Uh, his Wikipedia did have one other funny thing that jumped out at me, which is under the header public service. It says that in 1985, at age 26, he was, as we mentioned, named to the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. This is under the header public service. And then two years later, he mysteriously uh, develops his own uh, real estate firm. So it just gives you this like real, you know, Jack Nicholson's Chinatown kind of vibes where it's like, Oh, so he gets in with the city government because of connections from his dad. And then suddenly he goes into real estate after, you know, clearly probably being involved in city planning, getting all these informational advantages that most people don't have. Oh, for sure. Another, I mean, it's again, obviously two on the nose, but yeah, it's super Chinatown. We talk about it all the time. Another connection like that is Casey Wasserman's father-in-law was Peter Uberoth's right-hand man for LA 84, Paul Ziffrin. So the co-architect of 84 is the father-in-law to the co-architect of the 2028 games. Mm. Because why wouldn't it be? Of course it is, right? Like, you know how to run it. You know how to game it. It's a family business. You have the connections. It is. It's an organized crime. IOC mafia. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, and just to touch briefly on the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, um, founded by a eugenicist, Pierre de Coubertin, um, Baron Coubertin, he's a baron. To this day, I think 10% of the IOC is still European royalty. Um, <laughs> Henry Kissinger is an honorary member. So Henry Kissinger gets paid more per diem to go fall asleep in the stands than most American athletes do to compete. Hmm. That's cool. Um, all men of, of other financial criminals, European oligarchs in particular. Um, the IOC is why the Olympics are bad, right? If, if, it, if it was the athletes and some accountability structures, uh, maybe. But, you know, they're based in Lausanne, Switzerland, like down the street from FIFA. Now, see, FIFA is arguably maybe a little bit more openly corrupt. But, like, you know, they're based in Switzerland for a fucking reason. <laughs> you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, this is a high-level, extranational, you know, organized crime ring. And, um, and, it's, and it's weird because everyone kind of knows that, even if you're not paying attention or quote-unquote super political. It's just the marketing power usually dominates that and makes us forget. There's a reason it happens every four years and not every, like, two... I mean, I guess that, you know, the Summer Olympics only happen every four years, I guess. So, hmm. it's wild. And one last thing to, to get to about Rick Caruso. I did find an L.A. Times article from 2016 that pointed out, as of 2016, he had uh, made political donations to all but one of Los Angeles's 17 elected officials. And of course, you know, the city government are these, uh, he's making these political donations. These are the same people who approve his permits for building and all this stuff. And they, in this article, they talk about a 20 story residential tower on uh, La Senega uh, Boulevard, which at the time was limited by zoning to a height of 45 feet. He makes all these political donations and they give him an exception and allow him to build up to 185 feet. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people, a lot of listeners will be aware of this, but this is just kind of the, the legalized bribery that greases the skids of uh, so much of the American political system, these perfectly legal political donations. Um, and I guess... Totally. And I guess just my question for you would be Rick Caruso's motivation for bringing the Olympics. I would assume this is just because he owns a lot of hotels. He just wants the hotel business or uh, any other speculation on that? I mean, I think he's also a racist, probably. Just uh, he's a Republican who lives in L.A. who builds these like fake Italian open air malls. I mean, I'm assuming that just based on the way he judged Bourbon Street, I think he does he does want to turn L.A. into like that, you know, whitewashed backlot that uh, tourists think it is. You know, he wants to obliterate all traces of the real Los Angeles and replace it with this Disneyland version where, you know, all public space is actually private space and there is no real public space where you have to see the plebs, you right. know? So I think I think he just doesn't care about the people who would get displaced because, yeah, he's going to make money. He's probably never met a poor person. Yeah. Yeah, at this point. Yeah, no, he's, they're going to make money. I think there's a, with all of them, there's a little bit of, like, prestige, I think, to it, too, but it's money. I think we've mapped more people like Casey, who are, who's, like, the financial you know, leader of this. And Rick Caruso is probably like one click removed from the, but he's very much in the mix, I'm sure. But I would say it's mostly through real estate plays. Um, but again, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure his uh, portfolio is really, really spread out. Like I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was also had some interest in Oakview group and some of the other private security firms that are attached. Hmm. But, um, and it's, and for him too, he's a business person who's maybe thinking about, running for mayor 
So again, it's more about the prestige of running a successful Olympics because no one else can do it. It's like a it's like a rich guy sport, kind of like the challenge of doing this. Um, maybe like gets him off to an extent too. It's hard to say. Oh, and I said last thing about Rick Caruso, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention one more. You mentioned earlier the corruption of USC, the college, of course. Caruso is the chairman of the board of trustees at uh, his alma mater, USC. And not only that, uh, when you talk about the corruption of USC, well, that was most famously illustrated by the news story where the federal government indicted uh, wealthy people, including uh, the actress Lori Loughlin, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, Lori Loughlin is apparently a close personal friend of um, Rick Caruso to the point where we also mentioned his yacht Invictus. Uh, Her daughter found out that her mother had been indicted over this uh, while she was on Rick Caruso's yacht at the time is when the news came out. Right, because these people all live in like a five block radius in Brentwood, and that's why it's ridiculous that they make any decisions for the rest of LA, because they never fucking leave Brentwood. They live in their little suburb where they're like, what if we made Los Angeles more like, you know, the Hamptons, which is the weirdest choice also. And they just stay there and go on their yachts and stuff, and, you know, it doesn't affect them. Yeah, Recruits is the face of, like, trying to reform all the bullshit at USC because they've also had several massive sexual abuse scandals on top of that, sports-related scandals. They co-manage the Coliseum, which is just a historical controversy machine, generating machine. Um, There's so many fucked up things at USC. Uh, But at the same time, that presents opportunities for us to organize around because at this point, the students are fed up, the faculty, the adjuncts, the, the, the whole system, the academic system is crumbling and, you know, USC is well endowed, but they might be having some massive issues moving forward as well. And he's the face of it somehow. Yeah, it's it's probably not uh, great for morale when your school's biggest news story of the last decade is a massive college admission scandal. Oh, yeah. And there's probably more stuff still to come out. There's so much money flowing that well, yeah, through their when military. When that scandal came yeah. out and people were like the USC scandal and I was like, wait, which one? <laughs> <There's> like... <laughs> Several of them in the past couple of years, even. But yeah, all these people think they can just use, you know, that money will will buy the way out of the problems that money has made, you know, that if they just keep keep developing and keep throwing money at these problems, none of it will ever come back to bite them in the ass. But yeah, people in LA are realizing, we're like, oh, building is not going to build us our way out of, like, right. housing these 600,000 people. It's just taking the vacant space that is being sat on by rich people and expropriating that or turning it into community land trusts or whatever. Like that's, that's what a lot of my day job is about. That's a lot of my organizing. Our organizing is trying to like imagine a future for Los Angeles, like an alternative future to Los Angeles that is fully irreconcilable with the Olympics. Like there's either LA has the Olympics and we're going to keep going down this horrible path that we've been on for the last 20 years, if arguably for a long, long time, or we do something else. And now we're at this moment where this, all the rules are you know all the bets are off and like we don't know but we think there's a there's a possibility to challenge power here in a meaningful way and make 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 space for like someone way further left of rick caruso to be the mayor in a few years mm-hmm. all right well uh i want to thank you both for joining us this is uh, very informative um and uh molly lampert and johnny coleman of the no olympics los angeles coalition uh Thank you again, and I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, tell people uh, how they can help out No Olympics Los Angeles, as well as learn more about it, as well as just uh, plug your own projects where people can find you on the internet and, uh, sure. and all of that. Sure, yeah. 
I'll plug my project first. I am on a podcast called Night Call. We are a dystopian call-in show, so check it out. We're on the iHeartRadio network now, and uh, you guys should all come on sometime and definitely leave us some calls. Hell yeah. And um, for no for no Olympics-related stuff, um, no Olympic, NoLympicsLA.com, there's one O in there. Um, at no Olympics LA on all your major socials. We just started a TikTok. I'm too old to understand it, but um, we have a bunch of younger folks who are really excited to get that going. Um, Instagram, SoundCloud, and all that stuff. On our website, we have a whole bunch of other podcasts where we drill deep in different areas. We did a 10-part series a couple years ago where we did a whole hour just on 84, a whole hour just on fascism in the Olympics, a whole hour on uh, you name it. So if, 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 you know, if you enjoyed this and want to go deeper, we have plenty of other stuff. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's always great to be amongst like-minded people who are critical of the super wealthy and not just treat these people like heroes. So yeah. we, we really appreciate it. I also love the name Grubstakers because for whatever reason, it really specifically makes me think of Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> <laughs> Molly's That's a big good. duck head. I am. The only good bil- billionaire, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and I also want to say, too, if anyone's interested in organizing and never done it before, um, we really like working with new people. Yeah, and and especially in this moment, we really, we've been working with a lot of people who aren't based in L.A. So That's what I was going to say. You don't have to be in L.A. to be in No Olympics L.A. Uh, you don't even have to be specifically concerned with the L.A. Olympics. You can just be a general anti-Olympics, a general hater of the Olympics uh, <laughs> or hater of overblown sports capitalism at the expensive people yeah because it's not just this it's amazon you saw how they acted a few years ago with their hq it's yeah. other sports development it's not just the olympics it's how mega event gentrification works so yeah so we're not the fun killers we're the fun qualifiers <laughs> havers we're the fun havers we are the fun havers we have as much fun as i think you humanly possibly can um doing we definitely this work that is really have intense more, and serious. yeah we definitely have more fun than anyone's ever actually had at the olympics yeah anyhow <laughs> But yeah, we're always growing. We welcome new people because that's how we're going to fight and win is across, you know, states and other, you know, imaginary borders and all that, all that jazz. All right. Well, uh, one more time. Thank you so much. It's a very interesting, very instructive episode. Molly Lampert and Johnny yes, Coleman of uh, No Olympics Los Angeles Coalition. Uh, minor uh, programming note with regards to Grubstakers for our listeners. We are taking a two-week summer break from the SoundCloud Uh we're going to have the usual Patreon episodes, but for the next two weeks, the uh, the SoundCloud will not be up, so so don't panic. We haven't had a horrible falling out yet. We just need a, a vacation because of these <laughs> Skype episodes. Uh, but hopefully, the we pl- will go insane and not in the entertaining way. <laughs> If right, we continue right. how we're doing it now. Yes, but uh, hopefully the plan is, unless there is a another massive outbreak, we will resume in-person episodes towards the end of July. Uh, but uh, you can check for us. We should hopefully be back on the SoundCloud um, July 13th or 14th. Uh, but I uh, want to thank you for your support. And one more time, thanks for our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Manny Palmer. Steve Jeffries. All right. Good night.